If there was a recurring theme for me in 2013, it was the continual encounters I had with people from Seattle. I like the city a lot. I like the people from there too. I love the bands that have come from there. Maybe it's its close vicinity to Canada that makes it easy for me to connect with. I'm not sure, but I did six podcasts last year with Seattleites. Granted, two are with Duff McKagan, two are with Barrett Martin, but still, six podcasts with people from the same city other than my own? We played Seattle twice last year as well, once at the Showbox and again at the Gorge Amphitheater. The fates must be telling me to move there, or something like that. After all, it was the city scene back in the late 80s, early 90s that managed to capture my fandom, not to mention the world stage via bands like Soundgarden, Mud Honey, and Nirvana. It was a scene and a sound that came to be popularly known as grunge. But for kids like me, trapped between the conservatism of metal, the rigidity of punk, and the stagnancy of rock, the music from Seattle couldn't have come at a more appropriate time. It was a giant middle finger to all those who took pride in handing out middle fingers. What was once called alternative, before MTV appropriated the word and turned the meaning on its head, is now simply referred to as underground. And this is the music I have always gravitated towards. I will never forget going through the record bins at Vortex Records a long time ago when they had a small store at Queen and Spadina in Toronto, staring at the covers of Nirvana's Bleach and Mudhoney's Super Fuzz Big Muff. Something inside me kept telling me to buy both of them, but saving up only enough money to buy one album that day and knowing little about them, I distinctly remember putting them back and going with the sure thing. The sure thing at the time being, youth of today's, we're not in this alone. It's good. It was a good album, but still, I, I should have bought Bleach. It wasn't even a few months later that I saw Soundgarden on television and my jaw immediately dropped. Here was a band doing a fresh take on Black Sabbath, appealing to everyone who is sick and tired of the same old song, including me. After I bought Louder Than Love, I marched back out and bought that Bleach album. Soon I got into Mud Honey and Tad. I even remember Nirvana coming to town to play Lee's Palace, wanting to go, but being underage. I was, however, able to go see them the, the first month Nevermind was released back in 1991 at the Opera House, a slightly bigger local venue, and with a few hundred people saw the classic Cobain Novoselic Grow lineup play with the Melvins opening. Just a few months earlier, I had seen Tad open for Primus. I had no idea Nirvana would blow up the way they did. Nobody did. I mean, the air was taught for change. Someone was going to grab the helm. It's just that nobody I knew was betting on Nirvana. Maybe Sonic Youth. Maybe the Pixies. Maybe Jane's Addiction. Maybe even My Bloody Valentine. But Nirvana? It's an interesting experience watching from the sidelines as your favorite band, the band you invested so much emotion in and cradled as your own, becomes so huge and in turn everybody's band. There comes a point, no matter how much kicking and screaming you do, and you must decide to either be okay with sharing your passion with the rest of the world or turning it over and letting it go. That's when spurned fans use the sellout card to toss at their former favorites, having never walked ten steps in their shoes. For myself? 
The music was just too good to ignore. I carried on my fandom for all these bands, albeit at a more reserved pace, but I never fell out of touch with what they were doing. Now, this podcast is something I I walk a fine line with. I've always wanted it to be an informal hang with whomsoever may be on it. Basically, loose conversations with my friends. Granted, I've used this podcast to meet people I've admired, and outcomes have ranged from relaxed and casual to nerve-wracking and tense, but they were always satisfying in the end because it was always only people I wanted to speak to. I have kept with my MO, and that is never doing a podcast just because space needs to be filled. I've quietly turned down all interview requests from publicists because I'm only interested in whoever I'm interested in. But when Magnus from the book publishing company Bazillion Points reached out to me asking if I'd like to speak to Bruce Pavitt, the co-founder of Sub Pop Records, I ecstatically jumped up, then gathered my composure, and calmly replied, Absolutely. I talked to Bruce last month about his recently released book, Experiencing Nirvana, Grunge in Europe, 1989 a photo book documenting the eight days he spent on the Nirvana and Tad European tour. Well, since our discussion, Nirvana were chosen to be inducted in this year's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Very deserving. So I guess Pavitt's book and this podcast episode couldn't happen at a better moment. Everybody has their own special time with a band they like. This period with Nirvana and Tad, documented in the pages of Bruce Pavitt's book, is my special time with these bands. It's like, it's like looking at magic. If one was to go back at this exact period and do a brain scan on me, it would show my brain, my guts, everything, everything about me was trying as hard as it could to find this very music that these guys were playing. It's fascinating, and it's a period in music that gets constantly overlooked when music pundits decide on what eras are worth focus. Now, this podcast was done through Skype. I think I've made a note on past Skype episodes that there is a slight feedback delay in my headphones, and this causes me to talk slower than usual because it can get very disorienting for me very fast, so keep that in mind when you're listening. I'd like to thank Magnus at Bazillion Points for setting this interview up with Bruce. I'd like to thank Blue Mike Microphones and Skull Candy Headphones for their support of the podcast. And I'd like to thank you for tuning into this. Enjoy. Bruce Pavitt is this episode's guest on the official Danko Jones podcast, and it starts now. Mr. Jones, it's Bruce Pavitt here. Hi, Bruce. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for uh, inviting me on your podcast. Appreciate it. Oh, I'm I'm glad you're uh, you're on it. Your book is amazing. I just was able to read all the text, but it was a, a quick read. It was very easy to read because I was sucked in. I love that Seattle scene at that time. Um, I really appreciate that. I'm I'm glad to hear that. For for you know for 
a good part of the generation 91 is really the the point the starting point for for Seattle for everybody with Nevermind being released and mm-hmm. now you put it out in 2013 it's given it enough time for everybody to mythologize the Seattle late 80s early 90s scene and the only way to tell the story is the way you did it through pictures it's like I don't know. It's like, it's, I don't know. I liken it to how, um, I don't, I'm not sure if you're aware of the, the other book, um, on bazillion points, murder in the front row. Oh yeah. Which kind of documents the, the San Francisco, uh, Bay area thrash scene, which through Metallica and Slayer have become, has become mythologized as well. And so in turn, Seattle did maybe three, four years later. Um, it's the, best way to tell the story through these photos it's interesting because the whole book takes place within the span of eight days it's i call it a micro history going deep in a very narrow sliver of time can you tell me what prompted you and and your partner jonathan poneman to to head over to europe and catch up with the Nirvana Tad tour that was already five weeks old? Sure. Well, the Lamefest UK showcase was the most important showcase the label had ever put together. We had run a prototype, Lamefest Seattle, back in June 89. Uh, it sold out the Moore Theater, 1,400 kids. It was a huge success. And we really felt that if we could get these same three bands over to London, which had the most influential music press in the world, that we could establish ourselves as as kind of an international phenomenon. Um, Because of the importance of the show, we really felt that we needed to be there and do what label guys do, buy people beers and shake hands and see how the bands are doing. Our initial plan was simply to go over to London for the showcase. However, we had heard that Kurt Cobain was suffering from nervous exhaustion and was pretty fried. So at the last minute, we took a detour down to Rome to see what was up, basically. Check in on the bands. And as it so happened, that very night... At the Rome show, Kurt had a, I would say, frankly, a nervous breakdown on stage. Uh, He was known to smash his guitars, but uh, strategically, it wasn't the smartest thing to smash his last guitar. Right. He then smashed the club microphone. He climbed a PA stack, and let me tell you, the the security staff was pretty, pretty nervous about that. Uh, they eventually talked him down, and by the time he got up to the dressing room, the green room, he told the band that it was it was over. Uh, it was it was a lot of drama there, and thankfully, we had the opportunity to take Kurt aside, pull him out of the van for a day, and chill out in Rome, while the the rest of the musicians. Uh, went north to Geneva. Kurt needed a timeout. Uh, I think it was really crucial for his mental health 
to be honest. Uh, we knew that it was very important for everybody involved to have this showcase in London go off. It was, uh, it was what the six-week tour was all leading up to. So anyhow, uh, we did spend the day in Rome, and the entire time I was traveling with, with Kurt and the bands, uh, I took a number of photos, and that's what is documented in the book. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize maybe they might, you know, be in bands themselves and go, well, I've been on tour for two months. I never went through a nervous breakdown. But <clears throat> you got to think back to the year that this tour took place. Was it Nirvana's first six-week tour anywhere ever? Or had they, they already? You know, they had toured the States. But I know that in the summer of 89, they they cut their tour short because they weren't getting along with Jason Everman, the fourth member of Nirvana. So it, in thinking it through, I don't think they had actually spent that much time on the road. I, I may be wrong about that. But you have to take into consideration the fact that they were in Europe. Okay, Kurt grew up in a small town. He was, frankly, used to eating certain foods and mm -hmm being in the States. So every couple of days being in a different country, eating different food, being that far away from his girlfriend and being in a van with eight other dudes along with uh, instruments and merch mm -hmm. and two of those guys being Tad Doyle and Chris Novoselic. <laughs> uh, you know, Very that's, big guys. That's, we're pushing the envelope here. I'm, I'm frankly, I'm amazed that um, Kurt was the only one who was really having uh, that level of difficulty. I, I just can't imagine it. Now that I really think about what those guys did, it was, uh, it was an epic journey and uh, major props to those guys. Definitely, because we're talking about a time before the digital age of touring where, you know, all you need is a Wi-Fi and you can connect back home for hours. And right. Good this point. is something taken for granted by bands today, you know. Uh, right. God forbid the club you're playing in that day, um, their server breaks down, and then you really see how many people <laughs> start to climb the walls. <laughs> right. Really good point. And I, I hadn't really considered that. Um, yeah, absolutely. No Skype calls. There's a photo in the book. Uh, of Kurt in the Geneva train station calling his girlfriend. And it just says so much. Um, we used a company calling card for him to do that. And for him, that was a luxury just to be able to hear his girlfriend's voice. I, You know, as our band has been around before the whole laptop digital age Wi-Fi. So I was able to go through tours somewhat similar to that, where you would take a whole bunch of change and just keep putting it into the slot at, at in, in, in the, the telephone booth. So you can kind of cull together about six minutes of phone time with someone back home. Um, and looking at those photos, especially the one where uh, I think it's Kurt and Jonathan in a payphone booth. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. And they're, I think he lost his passport. 
or something? Yes, his passport had been stolen that night on the train uh, along with his wallet. So a lot of drama there in that, that eight-day period. They could definitely, uh, you could definitely cr- create a film based on, on, that, on that story, I think. What's so great about all these photos are just, you know, a lot of people use filters on Instagram now to get the look that you have in these photos. <laughs> um, and um, it's so great that uh, at the end of the book, I think it's the last chapter, there's a shot of Chris Novoselic. It's in the Steve Double chapter. Where he's about to like smash Kurt's guitar with his bass guitar. And there you are behind Chris with the camera that was used to take all the photos that the reader had seen previous. I thought that was a real kind of, it just showed you just how uh, grassroots this book really is and just how in it you were. You know, uh, one of the. <clears throat> the awesome things about putting this project together is I released this initially as an ebook through iTunes last year. And Steve Double got in touch with us and said, Hey, you know, I'm actually sitting on a bunch of photos from that show. Would you like to use them? And so we have mm, probably 30 totally pro shots by Steve Double of the Lame Fest show. And I had never seen that picture of me with the camera. It was so perfect. I couldn't believe how that came together. Now, the irony is here you have the the end of the Nirvana show. Chris is about to smash Kurt's guitar into pieces. It's kind of the climax of the show. I'm standing there with my camera, and I tried to take a picture of that, and I realized I had run out of film. <laughs> so thankfully... Thankfully, Steve Double was there to take the shot. And then the project is super, super DIY grassroots. Um, there's a couple of shots that were just flawed in a really beautiful way. There's a backstage photo at uh, Rote Fabrique in Zurich where there's just, it looks like these orange flames coming up from the bottom of the photo, and there's Kurt and Tad and Kristen there. And it's it's a flawed photo, but it's very artful at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting for for me. Um, you know, we're a band that you know we're able to gain a little more success in Europe through touring. I, we've we've played the Rote Fabrique. We've we've played cool. the Astoria. Oh um, right, awesome. And Melkweg in Amsterdam. So it was really uh, yeah. nice to to see that there's this history behind all these these venues and to look at the photos and how the rooms have actually changed over the years. Um, It's funny how you build up the Astoria show in the book, because that's exactly how every band approaches their London show. Yeah, right. It's true. Uh, London has been calling the shots for a long time. And, um, they still do, uh, in in many ways, uh, affect m- music trends globally just through the the media infrastructure they have over there. And at that time, in the late '80s, in particular, the British media was particularly influential with um, John Peel, the the BBC One DJ, 
You had Sounds Melody Maker and New Music Express. These magazines were coming out weekly. So they always needed new material. And if an American band could get over there, they could most likely at least um, get a live review. Whereas a national magazine like Rolling Stone that came out every couple weeks was just simply not going to cover indie bands, period, unless it was a highly unusual situation. Now, this whole route that you took with your bands via Sub Pop, was this, was this a, a route that you guys kind of carved out? No, um, this is, that was set up by, um, by their tour booking agent. Over no, there. I mean by the idea of hitting Europe first and, and knowing that Europe and the UK would be the way to success. I mean, bands like F- Black Flag and Minutemen had already done this kind of uh, circuit, but they did it before the infrastructure was set up. Um, how did you guys know that it wasn't going to be through America? Intuition or? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, in- intuition, but just knowing my, my background is in, was in, uh, let's say, media. I had uh, I put up my own indie punk zine starting in 1980 had a, a music column, reviewed thousands of indie records. I uh, had an indie record store in Seattle, indie radio shows. So I'd been following the whole evolution of punk indie culture throughout the 80s, and I was highly aware of um, what media was available. And London was absolutely key in the pre-internet era. There's just no doubt about it. Uh, a, a zine like Maximum Rock and Roll could only get out to so many people. But New Music Express, if you get an NME or you get on the cover of Sounds, uh, that's going to that's going to wake people up at like Spin and Rolling Stone in the U.S. and possibly even commercial radio. So it was very conscious decision to try and garner the attention of the uh, of the the British press. Of course, Jimi Hendrix had essentially done the same thing in the 60s. Mm-hmm. What 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 are your feelings and thoughts about if you were to do it all over again in 2013 with Nirvana and Tad, would your route be exactly the same given that, you know, college radio doesn't wield the same influence that it did at the time and the blogosphere and the internet have kind of really muddied the waters it's such a different time uh and there's a number of different ways to answer your question but if i was doing it all over again with the same budget that we had back then which was pretty darn small i would be focusing on doing uh really creative videos for youtube that would be the 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 primary way I would be spending money. And then <clears throat> doing interesting alternative showcases, uh, working outside South by Southwest, that kind of thing. Um, putting on creative events will, with good live bands uh, is definitely a way to go. For example, just what we did at the Moore Theater in our own town, uh, generating enough local support by pulling pulling together our three best live bands 
And having the audacity to book a large hall like that garnered the attention of, for example, the Seattle Times, which gave us a review. Um, I think touring Europe and, and getting into in the British press is certainly less important now than it was back then. But it is a whole new landscape, and it's a creative challenge for anybody, really. How do you feel about the music scene today? Do you think it there's are you um disillusioned by it now are you turned off by it do you follow it uh okay good good question there's so much music out there that you have to look at it through different filters uh i'm a long standing fan of both popular music and alternative indie music and i would say uh a looking at for example just the the pop charts, what's popular, what are people listening to, what's, what, what's the soundtrack to this generation, okay? Uh, I would say I'm just shocked at how uh, stifled it is and how there's the same list of 10 artists that keep making the top 10 uh, iTunes downloads, you know. Yeah. Uh, there's a big gate that's been put up. And occasionally, somebody like a Macklemore will break it down, which I love, or uh, this woman from New Zealand, Lord, will come in. But it's such a closed system. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm appalled. I'm appalled at just how horribly uh, concentrated pop culture has become. Um, just to riff on this a, a little more, I was, I was born in 1959, so I grew up in the 60s. Had an AM radio glued to my ear the whole time, spent all my money on records. And when I think back on the amazing diversity of pop music, where you'd hear the Stones, Beatles, James Brown, uh, Four Tops, Van Morrison, Neil Young, uh, Sly and the Family Stone, whatever. I mean, it's just, it was just incredible, an incredible time for popular music. And it really brought a lot of people together. Um, so I have kind of an idealistic, uh, I'm idealistic when it comes to pop music. I think there should be a lot of diversity, and there isn't right now, so I think it's in a terrible state. Um, as far as indie underground music, I think the indie culture has uh, become somewhat watered down. My roots are kind of in uh, punk uh, I was going to punk and new wave shows back in 78, 79, and the level of creativity that I experienced at that point with, you know, going to see Devo or B-52s or Talking Heads or seeing the intensity of a band like The Clash, uh, was, it was definitely a golden era for alternative music. <clears throat> and all these bands started pretty much just for their own amusement. You know what I mean? B-52s just started out playing parties, that kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. And what I'm seeing now is more and more, quote-unquote, indie bands uh, bringing in attorneys and managers before they even have their first rehearsal, yeah. and they're plotting their next, uh, their first McDonald's commercial. So it's all pretty calculated, not, not too edgy. Now, of course, there's always interesting little crazy subcultures happening all over the planet, and, um, but it Whatever, a lot of what's potentially really creative is uh, not coming up to the surface 
as much as it, it could. Let me put it to you that way. So my overall take is that um, society could use uh, some revolutionary music right now, yeah. especially in light of the increasing wealth disparity that's happening. Uh, I would think that society would be ripe for some bands who were creatively criticizing what's going on with, for example, the American government and doing it in a way that would really capture people's imagination so that they'd actually be selling, selling music. Uh, our label started out with very little resources. We just were very passionate about uh, our bands and our music. We just want, we were living week to week. You know, if we can just put out the next Mud Honey single, you know, I can, I can die a peaceful death kind of thing. And you just do it one day at a time. And you start building momentum and people can feel the energy. They felt the energy. When those bands, uh, Ted, Mud, Honey, Nirvana, played Lamefest UK, they blew some minds. They came home. Seattle started getting more and more attention, and rightfully so, because people's hearts were in the right place. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, as someone who was watching this whole scene go grow from the sidelines, I was exactly one of those people who grew up as a metal kid i got into punk rock through metal but both at the time people don't realize that there was so such deep lines drawn in the sand between those two scenes this seattle scene and i know you refer to it as grunge in the book i don't know sometimes seattleites don't like that term Right. But you I, I know. I was it. just like, you know what? It, there was a specific vibe there. And mm-hmm. when you say grunge, people know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, right. So and I'm I, just going to go with it. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, I liken it to that grunge sound that people were trying to describe. I liken it to a mixture of MC5 and the Stooges meets Sabbath. Yeah. And all yeah. the people, like people like Steve Turner, when I'd see him in interviews, or Kurt Cobain or Chris Novoselic or Tad Doyle, I would see these pretty much headbanger rockers like myself, but with the uh, irreverence of punk uh, that was so And also kind of a pop sensibility, too, because a lot of those tunes were, frankly, pretty catchy. I saw them at the Commodore in Vancouver in late October, right before they finished up in Seattle. And uh, I thought they were incredible. I mean, there was, it was in the air. I was volunteering, working at a college radio station um, the month that Nevermind came out when I was in high school into university. And Smells Like Teen Spirit, you, you can't hear it anymore. It's like Happy Birthday. But the first time I heard it, you know, everybody was like, this is, this is going to be it. This is, this is going to do exactly what it did, which ushered in a whole new generation of music fans. It knocked down some doors. It, uh, very symbolically in early January of 92, knocked Michael Jackson off the number one spot. Pop culture can be interesting and Nirvana proved proves my point how did it feel as you know one of the main 
uh, people who made this move to to have that happen? How did it feel when that happened? When they knocked off Michael Jackson off the charts? Uh, it's I would I would uh, equate it with uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall or the end of apartheid in South Africa. <laughs> 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 it was hugely <laughs> symbolic. You know, all these indie and punk bands that had been laboring for an entire decade, okay, the 80s, and you know the bands I'm talking about, and finally somebody from that tribe comes forth and the rest of the world can kind of feel the energy that a lot of us were feeling at shows, not just at Nirvana, but Black Flag or Sonic Youth or Husker Du or Pixies or fill in the blank. You know, we were going to shows with great music. But there'd be, you know, 100 to 500 people in the audience and you'd look around and you go, this is some of the best music out there, but people don't know about it. So, so when Nirvana stepped forth and, and, and blew up globally, it was, a, it was tremendously satisfying on a level that uh, I'll probably never experience again. It was an amazing feeling. When was the point when you realized that it was going to be Nirvana out of the three bands? Because there's a photo in the book uh, that you took of Mark Arm watching Nirvana at the Astoria, and he's got this look like, oh, my God, they're amazing. I didn't know this kind of look. When did you realize that things were shifting? You know, I'm going to say that was the moment, but uh, it was kind of in that zone. You have to realize that when... Mudhoney did their first show in April of 88. Uh, they were all seasoned musicians, and their mm-hmm. first show was incredible. And I would say for you know the next couple of years, pretty much, they were one of the greatest live rock and roll bands uh, on, the, on the planet. Nirvana, when I, we first saw them in April of 88, uh, were just barely getting it together. Kurt had a great voice, but they didn't really have material. Their stage presence was completely not there. But frankly, I think that uh, Nirvana copped some of their moves from Mud Honey and was really inspired by the, the physicality of the Mud Honey shows. Mm-hmm. And by the time December 3rd, 1989 rolled around and they had done the six week tour of Europe, they were in prime form. And if you see some, yeah, again, some of these uh, Steve double shots of the Lame Fest show where Kurt's, you know, four feet up in the air or landing on his knees, uh, it's just an incredible show. And then you see the crowd response where the stage diving and crowd surfing did not stop for a moment. And this is in London, pretty jaded uh, music crew. This is every band in the world goes to London to prove themselves. And uh, the band really went off. So I would say that moment was as as a, a good a moment as 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 I can remember of Nirvana really proving themselves and um, certainly busting out of the uh, the the kind of opening opener band. If you know what I'm saying. Yeah, um, I must admit, out of the three bands, my my fandom and my heart go to Tad. That's <laughs> out of my out of the three. Those Tad's my, awesome. Yeah, that's there's th- some great Steve double shots of Tad in there too. And um, 
when you read the British press, the reviews, uh, they're they're undecided. You know, Mudhoney, Tad, Nirvana. A few reviews of of Tad Nirvana shows would be like, uh, Tad definitely stole this one. So it was um, it, the the praise was kind of equally spread out between all three bands. But I would say that Nirvana's trajectory, they just kept accelerating. Their songwriting kept getting better. Their live show kept getting better. Uh, and, of course, by the time Grohl got into the mix, uh, that's, that's yeah. when it was all over. Yeah, of course. Um, it's just, you know, I've always had a soft spot for Tad. I was always a big fan, a big booster for Tad. And it's how it played out is... Um, Nirvana became who they are, and I always thought Mudhoney as well got kind of the short short straw, um, even more so than Tad because they were just so billed as the next thing. You know, they're still around and they're still great, and they they always have an audience. But it's just too bad that the the whole Nirvana wave wasn't able to. Um, engulf tad and and mud honey the same way and rather uh you know copycat bands came instead but yes such is uh, the way kind of a tragedy i would say yeah I, you know i was wonder what kurt would have thought this guy that these bands kind of patterned their band after what what Kurt would have actually thought, because, you know, Kurt liked the Vaselines and the Jesus Lizard. He was never going to like their band. It was, it's just yeah, it's just odd. Absolutely. Well, an interesting phenomenon happened after Nevermind broke. Major labels were basically going, OK, we don't know what's going on. So mm-hmm. they started signing a lot of indie bands like Stereo Lab from UK and Hole and this and that. They were just signing any any bands that sounded interesting, and it was kind of an interesting era. You go to 92, 93, 94, and some of the signings were pretty adventurous. But then you realize that, uh, I think the labels realized that some of these quirkier, more interesting bands weren't really selling, and everything just shifted to Nirvana sound-like bands. And that's what dominated alternative radio, com- mm-hmm. alternative commercial radio, in the 90s and uh just kept getting more watered down and uh wasn't quite the the radical new era of creative uh, and energized pop music that we we had hoped for sub pop as a label i noticed that once um this whole grunge thing got commodified you guys took a left and even a right turn away from all that with your signings we 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 did. Um, John and I were both musical omnivores. We liked a wide variety of music. Mm-hmm. We were focused on uh, the sound that came out of Seattle because we we're uh, for one thing the bands were amazing and they were in our backyard. And it made sense to kind of roll with that. After Nirvana broke, uh, every major in the world started showing up in Seattle with, with big paychecks, right? <laughs> and uh, the bands that were moving to Seattle trying to sound like Nirvana, we weren't really that interested in. So uh, <laughs> we did as what any 
indie label would do is we just continued to seek out the marginalized actors in the room. Uh, the the cool bands that, that the majors hadn't quite figured out yet. Um, Combustible Edison? Combustible Edison or, or Seba or the Spinanes. Uh, Stephen Jesse we, Bernstein? Stephen Jesse Bernstein, poet Stephen Jesse Bernstein, exactly. So an indie label has to be resourceful and recognize creative genius and uh, when other people don't. There was one group we worked with, Sunny Day Real Estate, Oh yeah, who went on to kind of help create the whole emo sound and was a huge influence on a lot of bands. And they were in our backyard. That record did did very well. So we 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 diversified more, and uh, the label continues to diversify. And right now we've uh, signed some some hip hop acts, Shabazz Palaces, uh, the Faction, Ishmael Butler from. Uh, Chavez Palace is, is in the process of uh, opening up his own recording studio. So I think a lot of young Seattle hip-hop bands are going to be working with him. Uh, I personally, even though I'm, I'm no longer actively involved with the label, I've been following what they're, they're doing. And I do believe that there's uh, a lot of potential for what's happening in Seattle hip-hop. Uh, my personal philosophy is that ideally an indie label should be working close to home um, seeing what's in your own backyard and trying to cultivate that. And that's always been my, my personal philosophy. Um, you also signed, okay, having said that, you signed, a, well, Sub Pop signed a Toronto band, Mets, recently. Oh, my God. Mets. Mets are incredible. They, they have their rehearsal space two, three doors down from us. Dude, uh, Mets... You know, I saw them for the first time at the uh, 25th Sub Pop Anniversary Silver, Silver Jubilee gathering that happened in Seattle this July. 40,000 people showed up in the Georgetown neighborhood. Mets, uh, I just, at the end of the day, I said, this is the best band I saw out of all the Sub Pop acts that, that flowed through. Um, they were all good, but the only one that completely blew my my mind was Mets. Absolutely one of the best live bands I've ever seen. It reminded me a little bit of Big Black back in the day. Well, that's just it, is the signing of Mets and bands like Piss Jeans and stuff like that. I see a return to this 90s noise rock, and I'm glad. Cool. Yeah, it's part of the, part of the mix. You know, diversity is the key. Um, I'm stoked about that stuff, too. But yeah, Mets in particular is uh, exceptionally brilliant. Just huge thumbs up. Um, <clears throat> now you said that you aren't involved with the label so much anymore. How did you kind of extricate yourself from it? Well, <clears throat> it's kind of a lengthy story, but uh, by, you know, by 96, um, this, is a, this is a classic story with a lot of businesses where there's always pressure on a business to grow, right? And the bigger business becomes, the more, ultimately, the more departmentalized it becomes, okay? Mm -hmm. And 
I personally, I realize that I, I tend to work m- most creatively with small groups. I am not a corporate type personality. So in the early days, when I was running Sub Pop out of my bedroom, uh, and I didn't really have to answer to anybody, um, I could come up with a lot of resourceful, creative decision-making and not have to answer to a whole lot of folks. Then when John and I opened up our offices and had a small staff, it was still um, challenging because our resources were limited. However, it was a time of great creativity. And I think some people still consider the late 80s, early 90s kind of a golden era for sub-pop. And I believe that's when we were at our most creative, personally. Uh, as the company grew, it became more corporate, and that's classically what happens to a lot of businesses as they grow. So the the culture of the label kept changing, and I felt uh, less and less at home in the label that I basically started. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's more to the story than that, but I, I wound up leaving and uh, raising some kids on Orcas Island, which is... Uh, very beautiful place in Washington State. It's an hour ferry ride from Anacortes, 5,000 people. And I've recently moved back to Seattle because my teens started getting pretty big on a remote island. So we're now in the Madrona neighborhood of Seattle. And I'm, I'm going out to a lot of shows and uh, intersecting with uh, some sub-pop folks and so forth. But... Um, yeah, I'm just here doing my thing, working on some book projects, enjoying my kids. Well, the book is great. Um, I enjoyed it very much. Congratulations on it, Bruce. Really appreciate that. Take care. Thanks, Bruce. <laughs>